0: From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Thank you for coming back on the Podvocate, Judge Kendall we are so happy to have you back with us today.
2: I'm happy to be here.
1: So last time we were speaking about human trafficking and we're gonna continue with that theme today and we will dive right in. What led to your decision to co-write child exploitation and trafficking examining the global challenges and the US responses?
2: In truth frustration. I think that my friend Marcus Funk and I we were so frustrated with the way that the majority of people that we dealt with, even in the criminal justice system, he was a federal prosecutor as well, had misunderstandings about it, had misunderstandings about the reality of it, um, minimized it, or actually became emotional about it. And I think that Marcus and I felt strongly that it's such an important area of law. It encompasses so many areas of law, subsets, such as immigration, uh, criminal law, property rights. There's so many different areas of law that it encompasses, and yet there isn't even one course that covers that. And we felt like we needed a treatise. And mostly the reason we wanted to write it was because people tend to be emotional about the topic, and they get in their idiosyncratic silo of emotion. Either a prosecutor's attitude is, hang him high, or a defense attorney's attitude is, he's being pushed into this because everyone thinks he should be hung high. And there was like no real, let's look at these types of offenders as a crime and then look at the evidence that applies to each and really look at it the way we would any other crime. Because if you just looked at human trafficking and looked for a sex act for sex trafficking, that is not the crime. The crime is the coercion. The crime is the manipulation. The crime is the abuse. And certainly the violence and the sex is there. But we wanted to educate people that you have to look at these things objectively. Like, start being academic about this, and that's why we wrote the book.
1: In chapter eleven of your book, you discuss the Dr. Mark Wattsman investigation. Can you please tell us about that investigation and what made it particularly challenging?
2: Well, that's a good segue, actually, from uh, the, the frustration. I think the Wattsman case might have been the case that we were talking about when we decided to write the book. There were two extremely frustrating things that happened in that case. The first was personally frustrating in that we received leads from a server that was taken down in Florida that had been like a credit card recycler, so it took the original number from the user, uh, from the purchaser, and then recycled the number so it couldn't be traced back to the individual and it was to purchase child pornography. So we had lists list of thousands of purchasers of child pornography, thousands. And the first thing we did is we divided it with the FBI, we divided it up into geographic areas. And then we looked at the Chicago number and it was still hundreds, if not a thousand or so, purchasers. So we could not have the resources to prosecute every single one of those cases and I think that was just deeply troubling to the two of us so what we ended up choosing to do was to look at some basic information about the purchasers. So we ran background checks, things like that. And then we prioritized them. So Dr. Watsman became our number one priority because we found out he was a pediatric anesthesiologist and had admitting privileges at something like five hospitals in, in the Chicago area. First, the frustrating part was literally saying, we're gonna have to cut hundreds and hundreds of leads that we can't follow through with. And that was frustrating, but then when we actually arrested Dr. Wattsman, we had this, you know, unfortunately explosive news to release, which was that he had admitting privileges at these five hospitals. So as soon as the news was released, um, you can imagine any parent who had had a child who had had surgery in one of these hospitals was up in arms. And so um, the U.S. attorney went down to the main floor of the federal building and he held a press conference. And all the questions were, do you have victims who have been molested by him? And he said, at this stage, we do not have any victims who have been molested. This was literally the arrest on the child pornography charges. Now, think of some disturbing things about the arrest. What we found out about Dr. Watzman was that he not only was possessing child pornography, he had purchased handmade, homemade videos from Russia of child pornography. This links back to my previous comment about human trafficking. He said in his emails, I want this video made with this description of this girl doing this, and here's $5,000 for you to make me that video. And then they would make that video for him. And when the studio started to lose money, they contacted Dr. Watzman and said, we're losing money or we need money to do something else with our studio. He forwarded them money to keep up in operation. So this is what the evidence was of his purchases. It wasn't simply that he was you know, on the net just receiving and, and sending. Then when we actually searched his home, we found the the receipts for the money orders going over, we found the emails on the computer and we searched his car and found a trap compartment in his car that had the date rape drug in it and syringes. So this is a pretty powerful piece of evidence because as a doctor he would have a prescription pad and his number and it would go back to any type of uh, medicine you know that he had prescribed for someone. And of course, he didn't have that going to any of his numbers. He had it though. So he had this illegal date rape drug in this trap compartment, which is what we usually see when we have drug traffickers who are transporting drugs, right? So the second frustrating part was that we went to detain Dr. Wattsman pre-trial. And when we went to detain him, the judge that heard the uh, evidence was very frustrated with us for seeking to detain him. And this is where I talk about kind of the emotional one side or the other. Either you think, oh my gosh, we have to lock him up, or the other side that says you're only reacting to the emotion of a child being molested, and therefore I am the protector of his rights, and I must make sure that he's not railroaded, that kind of concept, right? But both of those are super strong polarized feelings where we just want you to look at the evidence objectively. So the judge um, signaled to us that she was going to release him. And her reasoning was this. She said that she saw the U.S. Attorney downstairs and he told everyone there were no victims. And if there were no victims, then there there should not be this sense that he was a danger to the community. Now, of course, it goes right against the Supreme Court's law in New York versus Ferber that literally each image of these children is a victimization, right? But more importantly, we had some young girl in Russia who had been victimized for his purchase, and I had wanted to charge aiding and abetting the production of child pornography. So not only was she uh, angry at us, is the best way to describe it, kind of irritated by us, I tried what I do in most of my class sometimes in kind of making it more objective. I said, you know, we talk to you about drug distributors frequently who don't have the drugs in their car, but we have the communications on the telephone or the email or the chat saying it's coming, and they have a trap compartment and maybe a stun gun and the drug ledger in the front showing the number of kilos, and that's sufficient to show distribution and involvement in high-level trafficking, and that generally is something that you would consider serious enough to put someone as a danger to the community. Remember, child exploitation crimes in the federal statute and drug distribution crimes have a presumption of dangerousness, right? So there is a, a, do you see the difference in the way that one crime was being treated? So it was rejected and he was released. The bottom line in it was there was a back and forth that in, included accusations against me as the prosecutor that I was um, seeking to warehouse the client for, you know, and take away his doctor degree in, in some kind of abusive fashion, which all of this is kind of this emotion and drama that comes out of these cases. Whereas I see now, I think that case was probably somewhere around 2003 maybe, I you know, 15 years later. I'm not so sure a judge in the federal building would hear the same facts and say, hmm, that doesn't sound dangerous to me. So um, it's an interesting concept of the way that the book needed to be written out of frustration and also just the way that these emotions tend to make us not look at things from our intellectual (laughs) brains, but rather our uh, visceral reactive brains. And I think the sooner we start doing the former and not the latter, I think the better we will be in trying to figure out and solve this very significant issue.
0: That's a good transition to our next question, which is about a more recent case. Like you said, about 15 years later, during your human trafficking seminar here at Loyola, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sarah Stryker discussed a recent child sex trafficking case in which you were the presiding judge please tell us a little bit about that and how you handled that specifically with regard to the punishment.
2: Well, I I think it might be on appeal, so I'm not certain. Oh. So it's not a problem. I, would, I can tell you what we did, though, that in open court. <laughs> I just won't be able to give you too many insights beyond that. So this was a Chicago police officer who was charged with trafficking. I'm pretty confident that the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was their first prosecution against a John, so meaning the person who purchased the sex. The trafficking statute does provide for that John to be prosecuted, but generally they're not, and the reason they're not federally is because the trafficking punishment is so significant. So this one, the U.S. Attorney's Office clearly showed that they were concerned about the situation because it was a police officer who had paid Uh, for sex with minors on numerous occasions, including while the girls were in their school uniforms. And he was an officer who kept his weapon under the pillow of the bed in a a coercive way uh, for them. And one of the children had braces. There was no misunderstanding here. Um, And so they prosecuted him and he pled guilty. But I think the uniqueness of the case here is that I've been teaching this for so long that the trafficked victim has mandatory restitution. It's a very, very poorly enforced aspect of of the statute, meaning that even the prosecutors are not coming forward seeking restitution for victims generally and there is some uh, studies that show that it's a, just a small percentage of cases where restitution generally comes into play as part of the order. In this case, the girls had received some counseling and some help through some nonprofit organizations, and so the expenditure of funds, according to the prosecutor, had, had not come out of the victim's pocket. But I wrote an opinion uh, showing that It isn't a question of just the things that made her receive treatment when she was first uh, rescued, but rather the protocol that we all signed on to is a victim-centered protocol that talks about bringing a victim back to a place in society where she should be, education, uh, health care, possibly housing. And so he had a police pension, and I ordered the pension to be seized, and I put it in a trust fund and I appointed a trustee where the the victims are allowed to petition for funds that fit that protocol and that fit the trafficking uh, uh, statute's requirements. And And he, in the interest of all of the beneficiaries of the trust, so not just one victim, but I think there's four or five that were going to be part of the recipients of this fund, could go to him and say, I'd like to enroll in community college or I would like to get out of this situation in housing. And they petition to the trustee and the trustee can use those funds for the victims. So I think it was a powerful case for two reasons. One was that it was the first John case. I'm pretty sure that was prosecuted here in the Northern District of Illinois. And secondly, it was uh, an important case as far as educating those, hopefully, with the public opinion that restitution is mandatory, not just in name, but actually in uh, in effect.
0: Yeah, and that's really important, especially for a lot of these victims that don't have um, resources, and that's a great way for them to get it. Okay, so the next uh, case that I wanted to discuss that you also brought up or discussed in the seminar was the case with regard to the woman that was traveling from Russia to Cyprus, and she thought that she was going to be on an artist visa. Um, You can talk a little bit more about it in detail, but it really spoke to me during the seminar, and I thought it would be an interesting international case to discuss.
2: Oh, it is, and to me, it's important for a number of reasons. First, it is the first international court finding of a human trafficking violation where a state has been sanctioned, so it was the European Court of Human Rights. And they held that Cyprus and Russia violated the rights of this victim. I, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Uh, Renchev is the way I've heard it said. It's Renchev versus Cyprus and Russia. And it's, a, it's also important because to me, it just is the, I mentioned earlier, there's just a story that is so typical uh, in most countries, even if the a geographic region is different. It's just such a typical story. And in this story, it was an adult woman who had heard you could go to Cyprus and you could work as a an artist on an artist visa. You'd probably work in some cabaret or something like that. And you could make about $5,000 for uh, six months. And she was poverty stricken, of course. And she went to Cyprus, which if any of you know, is like this beautiful little island, and it's, uh, you know, just a stone's throw from Turkey and from Israel. It's just gorgeous. and It has ruins and sunshine and lemon trees, and people go there to get married, and it's this idyllic place, and it also has about 50 brothels in the Cypriot North community surrounded by barbed wire and fences. And I've seen them, and so they exist. And what they do is they have a tremendously large sex trafficking tourism trade. So people come over, and they get picked up at the hotels and are brought over to these brothels. So this woman came over, and the very night that she came over, she found out that I'm not going to be in this cabaret. I'm going to be sex trafficked. I'm going to be a prostitute in this brothel. So she ran back to the police station. And the reason she did that was because her passport and visa were held at the police station. When she came in, the visas were actually held by the trafficker because the trafficker brought them in as the employer. And she asked for her uh, passport and visa back. She says, I'm leaving. I'm going back home. And of course, the police officer contacted the trafficker. And the trafficker came and got her, brought her to a a hotel in Limansol. And the story um, sadly ends with uh, people observing her either fall or being pushed from a higher story in a hotel and dying on the streets of Limansol. And the father of this young woman wanted to know what happened to her, and he began trying to obtain the police reports and information about her death and wanted her body back. And he was getting stonewalled right and left, and he brought the case in the, in the European Court of Human Rights. And the evidence that was presented showed so many typical forms of what we see even today around the world. Police involvement with the trafficker, the coerciveness of the, the story, there was a deception as to where she was heading and how she learned of the job. There were people that were in Russia deceptively telling her about the job. There was no shelter or 800 number or whatever to call once she had this problem. And then there was this like, cover-up essentially of what had happened. So um, the European Court of Human Rights found Cyprus to violate her human rights in a number of ways under the protocol. One was that this artist visa was so uh, abusive because this tiny little island can't support the 5,000 or so artist visas that they were distributing, so they should have known that these were being used in some improper fashion. If not, they did, right? Then there were no shelters or training for any of their law enforcement in, or any of the victims. There were no public awareness campaigns that could have put this young lady on notice. And then they also found them to violate international norms with returning the body and the autopsy. He did eventually get the body, but it was months and months later, too late to determine, you know, whether she was beaten or bruised beforehand, et cetera. They also held, though. That Russia violated the protocol, which was an interesting angle because all of us that are our signatories also say we will give our own citizenry public awareness. And the fact that this pipeline was coming from Russia to uh, Cyprus without anyone stopping them, stopping them at the airport, stopping them uh, wherever it was that they were getting the information, giving them awareness that this was happening, was a violation. And so uh, they fined both countries for that involvement. So that's the first international case. But to me, I've been to Cyprus, I've done training there um, post the Renchev case. Mm -hmm. When I went there, it was fascinating because the judges were clearly trying to do the right thing, but they... We're getting like cookie cutter statements from law enforcement. So they felt that the victims must be lying because they were so alike, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't have uh, any training or understanding of what uh, these victims go through. And it wasn't until after we did training that that also changed. And they began to have some prosecutions that were successful within Cyprus. But to me, it's just a the same, same old, same old, almost. I mean, it's sad, but it's almost like the same story told over and over again.
0: Yeah. My friend actually just returned from Cyprus, and I told her about the story, and she couldn't even believe it because, it, to your point, it's a island where a lot of people vacation, but then, as we've discussed um, in this episode and in the prior episode, it's a group of vulnerable people, and there's a need. Tourists apparently want this s- service from these victims that have been trafficked, so it it does make sense when you think about it that way.
2: And another thing that was interesting about Cyprus, of course, was their their banking uh, laws, because there was an ability to put funds into a Cypriot bank account and have those accounts be shielded, Um, so there's tremendous... um, suggestion that the traffickers were able to make a lot of money off of this operation and and, and use the accounts uh, to launder their human trafficking gains.
0: Okay, so the last real case I would like to discuss is the... Documentary that I had the privilege of watching during the seminar is titled The Men of Adelissa. It was heartbreaking to watch for many reasons, um, but it was an example of labor trafficking happening in the United States and actually in the Midwest.
2: But the thing that's so powerful about that case is it wasn't charged as a labor trafficking, right? And that's one of the reasons why I use it is to show Um, how first it happens right under our noses and then secondly this goes back to that issue of this case occurred long after Iowa had its human trafficking statute long after they had the ability to charge trafficking, and it was never even brought, from my understanding, to a federal prosecutor's office for such a charge. Mm -hmm. The story is a beautiful story and a sad story. Uh, It's beautiful in some ways because at the end, we do see our victims having a new life, which is something that we don't always get to rejoice in. But here, this was a fascinating one in that the men originally uh, were disabled individuals, mentally disabled, who were originally put in homes, in a home, I should say, down in Texas, where the founder of this nonprofit was going to use working as a component to care for them and have them live together. And eventually the money that they made from working was going to give them this Wonderful retirement life, and instead, what happened is they were transported up to Iowa to work in a turkey eviscerating plant, where they pulled the guts out of turkeys every day and proudly pulled the guts out of turkeys every day, announcing it. In one part in this documentary about pulling eighteen thousand or, or eviscerating eighteen thousand turkeys in one day, which is just hard for me to even imagine, but. What happened there is in the original part of the story, the men come to this town of Adalissa, and it's such a small little farm community where they are embraced by the community. They actually call them the boys in a usual derogatory way in the sense that they— that was just the, the their term for them. But they were embraced in the sense that they would come to, say, like the fair or the Fourth of July celebration. But soon after that, they were in this bunkhouse on the turkey plants property that this small community drove by every day, and they were um, sometimes beaten. They were deprived of the most humane living conditions. There was mold and cockroaches and horrible things. They worked horrible hours. They they had deformed hands and they had blood under their, their nails from the problem that they were, you know, digging these guts out of these turkeys. And it wasn't until one of the sisters of the man, one of the men said, uh, he's getting to retirement age. And she looked into his bank account to find out that he had like $80 in his account for working for the plant for 30 years. And it was a typical debt bondage type scenario where the turkey plant charged them for their living expenses. And so they really were not making anything but a few dollars each month. And they were kept within this horrible um, condition. We talked about it in class. It is a powerful scene. I think we talked about it in class to say, how is it How is it that that could have happened in such a small community? How, did, how is it that nobody said there's something wrong? And uh, it was an interesting discussion. It's my favorite discussion with students because so many students come up with really great ideas about about what really happened there, and sometimes even students from small towns give us some insight into uh, how it it could happen. But in the end, what we do know is that they came in and they shut down the bunkhouse. But they only charged the ma- they only charged the turkey plant owners with violations, uh, labor violations, mm-hmm. and they did eventually get some type of award that should have been pretty. Um, significant, something like a few hundred thousand dollars, Mm -hmm. none of which was ever collected. Uh, They've never received a dime. And once they were rescued, they were put into a social service system and they survived, which is beautiful. And that's the nice part of the story. But we talk about it in class because there's so many indicators of trafficking there. And there's so many ways that society just really kind of ignored this vulnerable group of individuals one of the powerful things in the documentary is that one of the men runs away in the winter mm-hmm. and he and he flees the house and they don't know where he went. They don't find him until spring when he's found frozen on the side of the road by one of the farmers nearby. And his death certificate says something like accident, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, if ever there was a reason, what, why would this man run away from someplace in the middle of the night? But of course, the fact that his vulnerability, his mental disability, uh, made him not cry out to the public Right? They always seem so happy. Remember how many times yeah. we heard the community say that? They always seem so happy. Um, and then they don't really investigate this death because, well, he was just someone who was mentally disabled, et cetera. So it's this interesting way. And the other interesting thing about that story is that labor trafficking, as you mentioned, Matt, earlier, when people are working In our society in the United States, we think that's a pretty good thing. So, like, when we see people working, we don't really think that's a problem. And so, when we see people working in a field picking, berries we were like oh good for them the berries are in season you know we're not thinking are those people getting paid right are those people uh being lured to do this job and so that little community thought the same thing well oh, they're working every
0: day it's good for them
2: and they turn that blind eye and let 30 years of suffering go by
0: yeah and even at the end of the documentary the original owner kind of has that same dialogue about it he's like well nobody wanted them and i gave them a job And so I found that interesting after all of this, that was still like his mindset about it.
2: Yeah, and many of the traffickers that have been prosecuted in my courtroom have that mindset. They're very paternalistic, and they say, well, I brought her in. She wanted to be with me. I gave her clothes. I gave her food. I'm the person that has been there for her. Um, Her family didn't want her. She wanted me, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That very paternalistic tone is a common theme in a lot of the sex trafficking cases that I preside over.
1: So we closed last episode talking about things that, steps that people could take to potentially make some kind of dent in this as consumers. I want to close on a similar note. If you could impart one thought that people could take away from their views on human trafficking. Again, we spoke a a little bit last episode about people might have their preconceptions about it's the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world um, preying upon more vulnerable people if you could impart one thing that you would hope that listeners would take away and think about in their daily lives in terms of human trafficking, what would that be?
2: I think that the victims themselves are human beings that didn't choose to be trafficked. They made choices that were based upon vulnerabilities. And if we could just look at that concept and recognize that These are people who are at the lowest point in their lives, you know, who get involved in something like this, either knowingly or unknowingly. We would be so much more sympathetic to the trafficked victim and we'd understand. And if we as lawyers are not looking out for those who have no ability to even reach out to the police, right, who have no ability to reach out and say, I'm in trouble, if we as lawyers aren't looking for that social injustice, then who's going to be doing that, right? So I say this to the students every year. Even talking about it over a beer with your friends is just one way of letting it become more natural in our society to recognize that it's here, it's about us. Don't you know, look the other way. <laughs> um, think about it as something that is uh, a civilized community and with people like us who hold the key to legal justice why aren't we the ones that are really embracing trying to make that change?
0: And I'm hoping that this podcast, um, this episode and the previous episode will really start that dialogue because I think, as we've mentioned before, individuals specifically um, in the U.S. think, oh, it's not happening here, it's not happening in Chicago. And starting these discussions and having the time to speak with you as an expert on the subject matter, I think will start to get that conversation going, hopefully. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming in and being our guest. I know that you're very busy, so it was an honor and a privilege to interview you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. you. Thank you, Matt. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allrutz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor in chief is Matt Doran. Special thank you to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make the show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been the Pod podcast.